asking for help is the first step in really doing the best thing you can possibly do for your company. You never know when opportunities are going to flow in front of you. You just have to be receptive at all times. Because there's never a perfect moment, perfect timing. There's always a reason to say no. It's easy to be in your comfort zone. But there's every reason in the world to take the risk and say yes, because we've got one life, one career. Why not try all the daring, audacious goals that you've always wanted to do? Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Hi, Stacey. So nice to catch up with you today. It's so fun to hear that we have almost the same birthday. (laughs) Yes, Amanda, good evening. Or good evening from New York. Good morning to the Philippines. Yes. Well, the way that we always start the podcast is I ask people, what was your childhood like? I know that you were born in the US, I think. That's correct. Oh, I had the best childhood. Born and raised LA. So I think just with all the sunshine and great weather you get in California, you can't help but have a very positive, optimistic, sunny disposition. And so you just get a great outlook on life when you're you're born in such a wonderful, mild climate to a great family like I had. So my childhood was great. I think one of the things that stood out to me when I like looked at your profile the first time I met you, I think two years ago or th- like yeah. two, yeah, two, three years ago was that you were an actress before. So was that something that you wanted to do or was it something your parents said like you should try out? Like, how did that even happen? <laughs> It is. It feels like a blur. Um, and thank you for digging that up out of my background, Amanda. It's always fun to reminisce on on those times. Believe it or not, people don't don't believe me when I say that I was a very very shy child. But just being in LA, everyone always dreams of being in Hollywood. It's you know someone, cousins, neighbors, so and so who's in the business, as we like to call it. Someone's doing commercials. They were a guest star on a TV show. And it's just part of the DNA of LA, actually. And so my cousins were active in that industry. And then one day we were at their birthday party and, and their manager, their agent, stiff my sister and I wanted to get involved and audition for McDonald's commercial that was being shot at the local pool. And we said, yes, one thing led to another. We booked that gig. I booked another gig selling Thomas's English muffins. It was a, a very popular breakfast food in the States. And it slowly evolved from commercials to TV shows to voiceover acting, which I absolutely adored. And I very quickly shed that shy exterior and I just became really who I wanted to be. was a very expressive storyteller in emoting and acting and trying on different characters, being able to don a certain character and try things out. And so I just had a blast. That was, uh, those were my first jobs. And uh, yeah, so I've been working since I was eight years old. And were your parents open to it from the, like from day one? Or was it something that they were like, hmm, we're not so sure, but we'll try it out. Or was it something they didn't like, but you like? Yeah, they were, they were so supportive my entire career. They weren't the stage parents, as we like to call them, the, the stage moms and dads who force their kids 
who are kicking and screaming, crying, dragging them into auditions. No, they were not at all like that. My dad, bless him, would drive me to all these auditions and out of Hollywood in that horrendous LA traffic. But because I genuinely enjoyed it, I liked acting, being in front of the camera, being on stage, interacting with my fellow actors and bringing scripts to life. So the one thing I do remember was they were very strict and adamant about my grades at school never suffering. So I was a pretty big nerd. I always got straight A's. And they said, the moment your grades dip below straight A's, we're going to reconsider your acting. School and academics come first. And so as long as you continue to maintain your good grades and your good marks, you can still do acting. We'll take you on any audition that you want. I said, okay, that sounds like a good deal. Was it ever hard to maintain those grades? Like, did you have to like bring your books or your homework to all of these like sets and like stay up late? Oh, definitely. Most kids who are in Hollywood, they actually end up getting homeschooled. It's really difficult to juggle the normal eight to four, nine to five schedule of school and then go drive out to Hollywood to go on all these auditions after school. And I just remember I'd be doing in my doing my homework in the backseat of the car. I just get horrible headaches, but you know, algebra doesn't wait for anybody that assignment <laughs> still has to get turned in or I'd be writing my essays and I would also be reading my lines, trying to memorize the script for that audition, for that role. So it was really tough juggling everything, but it's also very American to have your school and also have all these extracurricular activities. So, you know, a lot of kids will play soccer or play an instrument. I just happened to be going on a lot of auditions in Hollywood. It was a very, very different childhood experience growing up. And I think it forced me to grow up faster. I was around adults and trying to act very professionally. Not act, like acting from a camera, but also maintain this professionalism when I was eight years old. Interacting, I should say. Not acting, but interacting with the casting directors, with the producers, the directors, to convince them that I was the right role, that I was right for the part. So very early on, I had to adopt a very professional manner that I think has served me well throughout my career, but it was definitely something pretty different from what my friends were doing when they were all trying to go to soccer practice and I was driving out to Hollywood. So do you remember like any show or any part that you enjoyed doing the most? Yes. She's still my alter ego. The character's name was Jade Chan on the cartoon show, Jackie Chan Adventures. And she was the niece of Jackie Chan, the martial artist. And what I loved about that role was it was a cartoon show. So it was all animated. But because it was animated, the storylines had us traveling to India, to the Galapagos, all these far-fetched, far-flung destinations because Jackie Chan was getting into a lot of trouble and trying to save the world. And his mischievous niece was tagging along the way with the help of different magical talismans. And through that show, I actually got to experience the world. I was a teenager at the time that I was recording that. So through the power of the screen and animation and, and really our producers' imaginations, I got to act in different roles. Like one episode, I got turned into a leprechaun. One episode, <laughs> I got turned into an evil demon. And I had to recreate my voice into the scratchy demon with the leprechaun. I had to practice an Irish accent. I really got to transport myself into all these different scenarios, these different worlds that I never would have been able to in the physical world. And it just expanded my horizons in ways that I don't think a lot of teenagers get to do. 
How would you prepare to like be the voiceover for somebody who was in all these different countries? Would you study the country? Like, how would you prepare? No, I didn't. I wish Amanda I had a better answer and say yes. Unlike my colleagues who were pouring over their scripts because the scripts would usually get delivered to our houses like the day before, and they would be preparing all day. I was in school. I was in class. I was trying to get my homework done. And so on the drive to the recording, because all of us would record at the studio at the same time, I was still trying to finish my homework and read the script, prepare. So what really helped me was just having a crazy wild imagination and being able to envision myself as a leprechaun or to <laughs> as a crazy demon tapping into these weird personas that I didn't have, but finally being able to express myself and manifest myself in these characters that I never, ever would have dreamed of. It was cool when I was researching like your past acting role, because like one of the biggest like pop-ups on search was, is Stacey Chan actually related to Jackie Chan? <laughs> <laughs> it was not nepotism, I promise. I, I actually have never met the guy. So at least, at the very least, I can say that I got that role purely on ability and merit. It's not because he had the same last name. You, you, I, no, you don't think they I, chose I, it <laughs> because they thought I you try were to use that card sometimes. <laughs> yeah, when I try to get like reservations at restaurants or something, I'm like, yeah, I'm Jackie Chan's niece. No, I wish. Did it work? No nepotism in that case. <laughs> when you no. ask people for reservations. <laughs> nope, not at all. They're like, yeah, there's. Chan, there's a billion of you guys. Move along. <laughs> We've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Truly, they've seen the word or the name Chan so many times. And so after like your acting career, did you ever think that you were ever going to come back to it? I did. I decided to pause my acting career to go to college. But even throughout college, I would still, I went to, to school at Stanford. So that's in Northern California. Yeah. And LA is obviously in Southern California. It's close enough. It's still a plane right away. But I would I would fly down to LA every so often to audition for parts that I thought were really cool. That was even more difficult, studying for midterms, finals, trying to be a quote unquote normal college student and also fly down to LA for auditions. It just got to be really tricky, really challenging. And in college, I fell in love with journalism. And that was actually a career that I really was serious about pursuing. And I ultimately did. So life hands you funny opportunities. And I really enjoyed storytelling and writing and journalism so much that I thought, okay, I actually think this is the career that I want to pursue. And like backtracking a little bit, when you're applying to university, what did you have in mind? Did you want to stay in like the media space? Did you want to get into a certain college over the other? Yeah, I, I still wanted to do theater. When I applied to Stanford, I declared my major as drama. I also applied to NYU's Tisch School of Theater because I was very serious about acting. So I went in with one plan, came out with a very different plan. But I think, as I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to, many of us have ideas of what we think we want to be, what we think the future will hold for us. And you get dealt a very different hand. And it's oftentimes a good one, or you just have to approach it as this is a great opportunity. I'm going to seize it and see where it goes. How did you end up falling in love with journalism? Was it an accident that you got into it? Sort of. I haven't grown up in LA. I'm a huge sports fan. And I loved the Los Angeles Lakers, the basketball team. 
And I remember my mom would always sort of tease me. She would joke, I'm planting the seed in you, Stacey. You want to be a sports broadcaster so you can get your mom free Lakers tickets. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I want to be the sports commentator, providing all the insights and analysis on the game. I can be interviewing the players on the court. And so I took a sports journalism class at Stanford. There was something that specific. You could learn sports journalism. And it just combined two things that I loved so much, sports and reporting. And my professor, Gary Pomerantz, was just such a delight. He fueled this passion, connected me with really great sources. I got to talk to the sports editor at the Los Angeles Times in that class. And sports, while not everyone enjoys sports, but I think there's something so universally human about sports because every game has a narrative arc. And so in being able to tell a good story about a sports game or an athlete or a team, you're touching upon something that is so universally human in all of us, where we have someone that we're rooting for. We have a hero. We also have an antagonist. We have a beginning and an end. And sports journalism really helps me tell stories in a way that could bring to life something that we could all relate to. And I absolutely loved that about sports. And I thought this is probably the gateway into something even bigger. And that just fed into my love of journalism as a whole, being able to tell stories about anyone, any underreported group, organization, stories that didn't want to see the light of day. As a journalist, Amanda, you know, you're always looking to tell the underreported stories, give voices to the voiceless. And I, I absolutely loved that about journalism. And when you were at university, do you feel like you did achieve what you wanted and live like a normal college student hmm. life? Or like, was it hard to make friends as somebody who was sort of in the industry in LA or did people not care? Did people care at all? Oh, not at all. I think I had a very typical college experience. I had such a fun time. You see a lot of American movies about college life. I kind of did that. We worked hard, played harder. I would wake up, you know, go to class. And then by the time your classes were all done, you'd be going out to parties. You'd be playing all those drinking games. And for better, or for worse, things could get a little sloppy. I'm not saying American college life is perfect, but you form bonds with these people because it's our formative years. We're 18, 19 years old, all figuring out life. We got plucked from our hometowns in America and we're all together in this place where you're supposed to be at elite and this elite status learning from the best and brightest minds and professors in the world. And then at night, you're all suddenly 18 years old again and you learn alcohol, drinking, drugs, sex, all at once. It's a very crazy environment. So in that regard, I was a pretty typical American college student. But by the end of my four years, I just got the best education, a wealth of knowledge that did put me on a path to all the different careers that I've had. And I'm eternally grateful for my experience. Speaking about careers, what did your parents do for a living and how did it influence you, like their careers and their outlook on life? Wow, that's a great deep question. My mom worked in IT her entire career. So she likes a joke. She was the original tech employee for Arco, which was a uh, oil and gas company. And she was a dogged worker. She joined right after college. And she was a career employee. She worked there 
for almost her entire career, just plugging away, working hard, moving up the chain to middle management. And uh, she was the breadwinner uh, for my family, which was very untraditional in the States to have the mother being the breadwinner and supporting my sister and me and our family. And that dynamic was not without its challenges, but it really worked for our family because my dad was a day trader in stocks. So he had a more flexible schedule. And then as my sister and I got older, he took on a lot more of the household duties, chauffeuring us to all of our auditions and was very involved in our school life. They didn't have siloed roles. They, they definitely worked jointly together, but it was a pretty non-traditional dynamic that was not typical of American households where the dad is typically the breadwinner and is uh, at work late at night and the mom stays at home. So growing up, I think this gave me a really great foundation knowing that I could also be a career woman and be a mother if I wanted to. So I give huge kudos to both my parents for setting a great standard and my being able to visualize what my life could be like as a career woman. So after you graduated from university, what did you have planned and did it go according to plan? Shockingly, as most things tend to happen, it did fall into place at the very last second. I ended up going to grad school my senior year of college because I was going to graduate early, but I was not ready to leave Stanford. I was having way too much fun. I said, all right, what else can I do? So I applied to the journalism grad school program in my fourth and final senior year, and I got accepted did the whole curriculum, but I also had no job prospects. This was 2010. So shortly after the great re- financial recession, after the, all the banks, you know, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns all collapsed in 2008. So job prospects were very, very slim pickings. But Stanford graduates in June, I was able to wrangle a job offer in May to work at a journalism startup. Uh, AOL owned a company called Patch. They were trying to get into the hyperlocal journalism space and they were hiring a founding team of journalists. And I was lucky, I shouldn't say lucky, I need to strike that word from my vocabulary. I was very well prepared. I was very qualified for the job and I saw an opportunity and I seized it and uh, was offered a job at Patch a month before graduation. And when you got the offer, was it the ideal company for you? Like, was it your number one choice? It was. I, funnily enough, I had a couple of offers. There, things all come together at the very last moment. But Patch provided the exact intersection of journalism and technology that I was looking for. It was a new venture. It was not a traditional newspaper. It was a new online venture that was going to bring a hyperlocal digital news site to ideally every city in the US that was middle income and did not have its own newspaper. And so within about a year, Patch had grown to a thousand news sites in the country. It was one of the largest, if not the largest newsrooms in, or the fastest growing newsrooms in the US. It was a big, bold experiment on behalf of AOL that did not quite pan out. We scaled a little too quickly. AOL soon realized that editorial human reporters are quite expensive. Not saying that they were paying us a ton, but just that humans do need to be paid a living wage. And when you multiply that times a thousand yeah. times our hours, that starts to add up. Yeah. yeah. And what did you like learn from the experience working at Patch, given that it was sort of the intersection of tech and media? Was it 
the time when you thought like, oh, I want to be in the tech scene? Or was there some other bigger takeaway or memorable experience? I think there were two big takeaways, definitely on the tech side. But the first piece was really about building community because this was, I managed a bunch of different cities, specifically Redwood City, California. So this was maybe 10 miles north of Stanford. So in the heart of Silicon Valley, and it didn't have its own newspaper. So I just saw that this community was yearning for something, a digital space where they could learn about the news, communicate with each other. The mayor became one of the most active readers, users of the platform. He, I, I did a segment called Minute with the Mayor, and I record him every week to give his minute update because the, the city was just so hungry for that kind of knowledge. And a huge takeaway was that there are so many underserved communities. And I don't mean underserved in a socioeconomic sense. Redwood City had a, a good income bracket. It was, there are communities all over the country, all over the world that want to connect with each other. And being able to build that and serve the community was one of the most rewarding ventures that I've done in my career. I did leave after a few years and put it in the good hands of my successors. But being able to build that out was just so rewarding. It, it still has a lasting impact today. And to your question, Amanda, I think it did expose me to the power of technology to build those communities because everything was online. We didn't have a physical newspaper or an actual magazine that we could send. It, it was all online. And that was not without its challenges. I got the trolls, the haters who would leave nasty comments on the articles that I wrote. I got some, even some physical threats when I wrote articles about gun control, for example, or very sensitive, controversial topics where people did not like the reporting that I did. And my physical address was posted in the comments. Some troll even posted on a forum saying, if you don't like the reporter, Stacey Chan's viewpoint on this topic, you can actually tell her to her face at her address. And someone found my physical address and posted it. So journalism can sometimes be a very thankless job, sometimes even dangerous. Yes. <laughs> but it is such an essential role as, as you know, it, it is so important to be shedding light on these topics that do go underreported. How did you handle those moments where you had that kind of criticism and, you know, threats? <laughs> oh, that one was just a whole other world. I mean, my, my, I was living with roommates at the time because, you know, journalist salary, you can't afford a place in Silicon Valley to live by yourself. My reporter was on call that day because we work around the clock 24 seven. She saw this and she immediately called the police. She called the police and reported it because this is a very real physical danger, especially around gun control. Presumably this person potentially owned a gun and could could use it. And so she called the police. She notified me and I had to notify my roommates. I was mortified first and foremost that this was happening. I, I felt so guilty that I was putting my roommates potentially in danger. But once I got over the, the danger part, it really is part of the job. You, the reporter, try to do your best to shed light on a certain topic, bring the most truth that you possibly can, the most fair, objective reporting to a story. And my professors used to always say, you know, you're doing your job right when no one's happy with you because both sides have a reason to pick apart your reporting. Both sides don't think that you're being fair to them because they want you to represent their viewpoint or cozy up to them. And so being a journalist is a pretty thankless job, but it is such a core pillar, a core tenant of any democracy that you can have objective reporting, that you can hold truth to power and you're not going to be in the pockets of 
the government or a special interest group or lobbies that want you to report the story a certain way. What brings you like the most joy from being like a writer, journalist, creator? Is it the process? Is it the result? Is it something else? I think the the feel good part really is telling stories of people and being able to bring communities together by shedding light on an angle or a viewpoint or person that you never would have been able to be in touch with. Just seeing a perspective that you never would have gone before. Unfortunately, I think media today is so polarized because the most lucrative journalism is the reporting that feeds to people that already have that viewpoint and you're sensationalizing and and actually just further empowering, angering them with their own viewpoints. It's tunnel vision because that's what's going to sell. You're going to engage them more on platforms and platforms are incentivized to keep their users on there for as long as possible. So you're inciting people with the viewpoints that they already hold. You're not trying in any way to challenge them with a different perspective or bring new facts to light. And so I think the best journalism is not not with the goal to change people's minds, but to at least diversify their thought, probe, push, get them to think a little bit about outside their viewpoints or their vantage points. Because ultimately what you're trying, I believe journalism should do is get people to empathize and connect with others more. And then you have a much kinder society where we're not trying to attack our neighbor just because you're a Democrat or Republican or you're of this party or that party, you're from this country or that country. So I think journalism actually is a way to bring a more connected society together that can understand each other. And after you stayed at Patch, you went to Google right after, right? So how did that happen? Yes. Did you have Google as the goal? Did they recruit you? Was <laughs> it something else? Oh, Google is never the goal. Not that it's not a wonderful place to work. I was there for nine, almost nine years. I loved it. It was just a, a little twinkle in, in my eye at Stanford's journalism program. They did a very good job of always bringing alumni to happy hours and mixers. So you were heartened as a journalism student. You realize you can still get a job. Don't worry. It's not all for naught. So in an alumni mixer, I was introduced to a gentleman who was maybe four years my senior. He had graduated earlier and he was working at Google News. And I got his business card. I said, oh, this is Google thing. This seems like it's going to be around for a long time. It's going to be here to stay. I should probably keep in touch with this guy. I kept his paper business card. This was even before I graduated. And I just kept it for years and years. And when I started to get a little burned out from journalism, I would poke around sometimes and see what other opportunities there were. And I dug out David's business card and I said, I'm going to reach out to him and just see what potential openings there are at Google. And if he was even there, right? Because <laughs> it was right. Like here. I mean, he might have disappeared. <laughs> exactly. Who knows? He might have ridden off in the sunset, gone who knows where. But um, he was still at Google. He was moving on to another role. He was hiring for a backfill. And fast forward through the crazy, infamous seven-round Google interview process, I ended up getting the job and got to join one of the coolest tech companies that took my career into a very different direction. But boy, did I love every minute of my time at Google. What was the most unexpected thing that you found value from being in Google? Wow. Two things. I would say the ability to actually impact billions of people. I went into journalism 
because I thought the power of the pen was the best way that I could affect change on a good mass of people. When you when you distribute information, that's how you can inform people, educate, get them to just be a more informed society. By working at a company that was building products that did impact a billion people, it was fulfilling my dream. So I, I did have a little bit of angst joining Google. I said, oh my gosh, am I going to the dark side? Am I abandoning journalism to go to tech? And the work that I was doing, particularly because I got to work on some amazing products, Google News, Google Search, where people were using this every single day all around the world. I knew that I was having an impact because my role was more on the partnership side, the product partnership side, shaping the products, working with partners that could more showcase their content. So when you were looking up news or breaking news events on Google, it would direct, it would showcase incredible journalism. So that I was immensely proud of. And then on the personal side, Google is an international company. And though I started out in Mountain View, California at the headquarters, I was able to transfer to the Singapore office where I met my co-founder of 1B Stories, Anu. And then after Singapore, I got to live and work in London. So from a California girl who had never lived outside of California until the age of 30, and having lived on all these different continents, and then also did the digital nomad thing, Google was really a gateway for me to see the world. And for that, I am and always will be so grateful to Google. So how did you know it was time to leave Google? Did you kind of know it for a while? It was like itching at you. And then you just ended up deciding, okay, I got to go after a certain amount of years of feeling that itch. No, I was not ready to leave Google. I was loving my time. I was in London working on the Google Assistant. So it was a relatively new product for me. But Anu reached out to me with this incredible, ambitious goal of starting a company that was going to be an AI storyteller that was going to tell the world billion stories. I said, wow. And you know, we cheekily named the company. He, he, he picked the name because Google always talked about a billion users. Everything was in the mess. Oh, yes. That was the kind of impact that we could have. And so when he said, I am going to start a company called One Billion Stories, Stacey, this speaks to the two things you love most, which are content and technology. You have to come join me. And when you get that kind of opportunity, that kind of mission, how can you not join? So I think what I've learned in my career is you never know when opportunities are going to flow in front of you. You just have to be receptive at all times because there's never a perfect moment, perfect timing. There's always a reason to say no. It's easy to be in your comfort zone. But there's every reason in the world to take the risk and say yes, because we've got one life, one career. Why not try all the daring, audacious goals that you've always wanted to do? Do you know why Anu picked you? Because, I mean, you stayed at <laughs> Google in Singapore for three years. Are you guys really close? Did you guys like not really know each other that well? But he thought that... You would be great. So even if you were in London and maybe we're not close, you still reached out. Like, what is the backstory between like picking you as a co-founder and you also like picking yeah. him? Like, why would you, let's say, trust him and build it yeah. in Singapore of all places? I know you're in New York now, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Anu and I worked very closely for years, even when I was in Mountain View. And then when I moved to Singapore, oh. he became my boss. So oh. we were hand in hand. We used to joke, we were the dynamic duo, Anu and Stacey take over the world, not in a nefarious way, of course, in a very positive way. So we worked very closely together. And I, I know that he, he knew what I was capable of doing, he knows how much I love 
to connect with people, to talk to people. And I, one of the greatest things I, I gained, I think, from moving and living in so many places around the world was I could feel comfortable being dropped into any country, even if I didn't look like the people, even if it was a very different culture for me. With the Google Partnership School, for example, I worked on a project that required me to be in Dhaka, in Bangladesh. I'm not Bangladeshi. The Bangladeshi people don't look anything like me. I don't speak Bangla, but I was able to work with the government to procure their data so we could build AI forecasting models and do flood prediction. So that became the big AI flood forecasting project at Google that was literally saving people's lives by predicting when floods would happen. And we could send the alerts approximately 24 hours in advance to literally tell people, get the heck out of there. It's going to flood. And talk about life-saving technology. I'm just so proud of the team that was able to build that. And my role in signing the contract with the Bangladeshi government is one of the things I'm most proud of in my career. So I think it's those examples that when Ani was my manager, saw this, he was like, huh, she's got some sort of skills. This could be very interesting to be able to build a company where Stacy can go talk to a bunch of partners, sell the customers, let's try to start something together. And when he reached out to you, how long did it take for you to say like, yes, I agree, I'm jumping onto the ship? I think it was just a couple of days. I'm so excited. <laughs> you just knew. He has, I knew he's also the most charismatic person. He has a very convincing way of painting a vision, pulling you in and just getting you so excited about a vision, a mission, a goal that is unlike anything that I had ever done in my previous jobs. And now that you've been building it for two years now, what is it like? Can you reflect a bit on like your journey? Did it ever like come to you that like, oh, if I am a founder now, like, am I a bit too old? Am I a bit too young? Is Do I have the right experience? Did you ever have that kind of doubt? Definitely. Because I had already done so many careers, you question like, am I ready for this? Am I right for this? Should I just stay on the steady, predictable path? Google was still wonderful, exciting, but it was it was very predictable. I knew how to do my job well. I steadily got promoted on a pretty regular cadence. And I'll be honest, I, I was what I tell people is I got really good at being a Google employee. And I got to a point where I wasn't sure if I was really learning or attaining any new skills. And when I left, I was still in my mid-30s. I felt that I had so much to learn, so many challenges to face. And by not putting myself into those challenging spaces, I was doing myself a disservice. And there are very few opportunities in life to start something from scratch. And I don't have a sales background. I've never been a founder. I've never built a business. But if Anu was willing to take a chance on me and had this daring vision why not join and try? The worst I could do, I think we both had to face failure in the face, like coming to terms with what if this doesn't work out? You look at the stats, 90% of startups don't make it. You got to be a realist as well as a crazy optimist. And I had to do a little bit of both. And I got to certain points in the, the two-year startup journey where I said, I don't want to believe it, but I have to also accept and be okay with this not working out. I got to set aside my ego. I got to be a realist. And this is not a point of shame. It's just the reality. And already I've won by joining this startup. I've won because I've learned so much and I've grown 
exponentially as a professional. So there is no loss. There's no fail. It's all upside from here. During the times when it feels like it's super difficult, like what usually helps you keep going? Is it like knowing that your co-founder believed in you? Is it like from the self? Is it from, I don't know, the product or the customers? Or do you do like something like you relax so it helps you get through it? (laughs) (laughs) I go lift heavy weights at the gym. No, well, that that is true. But I think where the first thing is is really having a supportive family and friends network because you're going to embark on this journey. And I realize how fortunate I am. Not everyone has this, but my family is my rock. And for some reason, if this startup doesn't work out, I know that I've got a home in LA. Am I? I've got a room in my parents' house that I could always go home to and crash. And they would welcome me with open arms. That door is always wide open for me to crash and come home. So I knew that that was, if that was the worst case scenario, I was fine financially. The second is really finding a sense of fulfillment. I do believe with our company, One Billion Stories, that has launched Videofy, our product, I do believe Videofy has the opportunity to fundamentally change the content landscape. If we really can videofy the world by converting static text, articles, newsletters, whatever it is, into a much more visual engaging format, that is going to revolutionize how the world consumes content. When you just stick to that, and I see it every day when talking to customers, when brainstorming with organizations, nonprofits, SMBs who are trying to figure out their content strategy. That's where I get the most energy. And I know we're onto something. And that's what keeps me going every day. When people look at your resume, like you went to Stanford, you have an undergrad, master's degree there, you worked at Google for X years, probably think that it's easier for you to fundraise than other people. But could you give us like a realistic look into like, what was fundraising like for you? Yeah. And I I have to give so much kudos to Anu. He did a lot of the fundraising from angels before we had come up with this idea. So keep in mind, I think investing and fundraising is such a gamble. It's a really tricky game. Timing is everything. So the fundraising happened in 2021, 2022, when the market was very bullish. I do think investors, VCs were so generous. Everyone was looking for the next big thing. So we definitely saw that opportunity, saw the the wave, and we were able to lock in ultimately a seed round of $5 million, which gives us a good amount of runway. But just a few months later, it would have been the start of 2023, which was the height of all the tech layoffs. And if we had just waited a few more months, it would have been a very different narrative. So I'm probably not the best person to ask in terms of guidance on fundraising. I think it's up to each company to decide whether this was right. For a SaaS, for a software company like ours, I do believe fundraising was necessary to hire the best and brightest, most talented AI engineers. You do need capital. I think there are many startups that can bootstrap. And if you can, do that because it is your own business. It really is your journey and you're not beholden to certain voices or certain directions. We have wonderful investors. So again, I think this was the right path for us. But every startup needs to take a good hard look in the mirror and figure out what fundraising financial solution is the best for them. 
In the like two-year journey that you guys have had, did you make a lot of pivots? Like I know that at the beginning when I started Backscoop, I thought like, okay, I'll start with a newsletter, but then I'll do like this thing after. And now like it's been almost three years for us. And I'm like, okay, we just stuck with the newsletter. We didn't have to do that AI platform for content thing anymore. Like it wasn't probably needed. So for you guys, was there like any pivots in like the vision or like the product roadmap or the actual product that you have? Yeah, and I think similarly to you, Amanda, we, we played around with different formats. So our, our first product wasn't Videofy. It was actually called Storify because we were converting text to Google Web Stories. And Web Stories was a format that looked and felt like Instagram Stories, but it was built on Web HTML because that's actually what our expertise was, was really in the web space. And then as we started to talk to more customers, they asked, well, do these web stories work on Instagram and TikTok? They said, no, it's, it's web-based. But we kept getting that same question over and over again. And when your customers are asking for something that is somewhat fundamentally different from the product you're building, you also have to figure, okay, is this a more viable, sustainable business? So we pivoted and actually built a new product, Videofy, that is our text-to-video platform, which we're now probably 90% invested today. Like Storify is great. It's in maintenance mode. We have customers using it, but we're so excited to be all in on Videofy because of the traction that we're getting and the the distribution, the usage out of videos instead of Google Web Stories for publishers and SMBs and, and businesses of all sizes to grow their, grow their actual bottom line. So while working at Google, there are probably like there like there are probably many different layers of management, lots of stakeholders internally and externally. So I think there are lots of lessons there. How do you take you know the lessons working at corporate or big tech, where there's so many layers of people and processes, and bring that to like a startup where maybe it's a little flatter? But where's like that? Where are the lessons from Google useful now, even with a small team? Is it in the way that? you manage? Is it in the way that you like, I don't know, help your team grow? Like, oh, you know that after a certain amount of years, they should grow to this? Amanda, you're such a journalist. You're such a great question asker. (laughs) Uh, I I love that. Because going from Google to a startup is not a very traditional path. I mean, I feel like those are both extremes. Like one of the biggest corporations on the planet to a scrappy startup. We're now 50 people. So there's a huge world and universe in between, but I've done the extremes. But I do think there are so many great cultural practices and processes that Google implemented just set the tone for what a company could look like, re-envision the workspace. And things that I've really taken from my time at Google were about the culture. It doesn't matter if you're a team of 15 or 50 or 5,000, the culture of ownership and trust and not micromanaging is something we bring to one of these stories. Because we are a hybrid team, more or less remote, actually. And I'm not breathing down anyone's neck. We have to work asynchronously because we work across all time zones. Singapore and New York are exactly 12 hours apart. So there's no way that Anu and I and the Singapore team can always overlap. So we just have to trust that we're all going to get our work done. And paying on Slack, set up times that work when we can. And that sort of empowerment, I think, really allows and enables people to thrive. And there are processes like OKRs. Quarterly planning, we used to grumble like, oh, it's OKR planning season again. But having that rigor and discipline to think about what you want to achieve quarter on quarter is really, really important. 
because in a startup, the daily grind can take over. Every single day, my to-do list looks absurd. I know I'm never going to get through it, but I just focus on that. And, and I sometimes can lose sight of the bigger picture. Like, what are we actually trying to achieve this quarter? So processes like OKRs, super important. Processes like performance reviews, the leads. We just did our performance reviews. And um, it sometimes does feel a little silly. I'm like, we're, we're 15 people. Why are, we, why are we doing performance reviews? But we want to build a culture, even from year two, that invests in our people and can help them grow by giving them feedback on how they can be better employees, not just at 1B, but forever in their careers. So there are some things that we really try to borrow and other things like the big bureaucracy that we try to avoid, but it is a balance. And I do think there's so much value in bringing culture and certain procedures, processes from a place like Google to even startups of the size of 15. I was curious. So I think Anu is based in Singapore and you're based in New York. Is that like a strategic mm-hmm. decision? Like why like you're based in New York and he's based in Singapore? Yeah, it's it's been a tough decision, but we've settled on this primarily because I think when growing a business this is something every company should think about is what is your US presence? I don't say this as a biased American, but when you look at the customer market, US companies' customers can pay sometimes twice as much. You can get a dollar from an American company. You can probably get 80 cents from a European company and 50 cents from an Asian company. I know there's a rough generic numbers, but when you're looking at those kind of economics, you got to think about how am I selling to an American market? And by nature of my being American, I can live and work here. It just made sense for me to be in the US. And while I do love California, because we were really targeting media and news publishers, as our ICP, New York just made the most sense. And boy, do I love it here in the Big Apple. It's cold right now. It's winter time, But otherwise, there's just this energy and vibrancy in New York that really does make it one of the best cities in the world. I think you have a good point. I think especially for media and like people trying to invest in media, there's more willingness to pay from the U.S. because they probably tried something similar before or have done something like at least with people before maybe manually versus like with a tech solution. So it might be also easier for some companies to close clients in the US. It is interesting. And, and Amanda, you bring up a good point. I think companies in the US are older. They've been around more. So they have been around the block to try experiments. But what I really loved about living in Asia, my time in Asia, was the innovation, the spirit, the willingness to try an experiment in Asia, even if the money wasn't there, but Asia moves fast. If you have a good idea, they want to trial, they want to experiment in a way that it depends. I'm, I'm painting broad strokes, but I do believe overall Asian companies do move faster than American companies. So it just depends what you're optimizing for. If you are thinking about revenue, which of course every company is, then yes, it is in the US. It's going to be longer sales cycles though. If you want proof of concept, if you want thought leaders, if you want instant feedback, go to Asia. They're going to be willing to try your product and test it out. And you're going to get pretty instant feedback on how uh, and validate hypotheses on whether this product has legs, what you need to iterate on, and if your business idea has any sense of direction. What is like the biggest hard lesson that you learned as a founder? I think I have to get better at learning to ask for help. I think founders are very ambitious, hardworking people who grind it out. 
there is no stopping point. There's no break. There's nothing that I wouldn't do for this startup. But that's not necessarily the smartest approach. It's not the most sustainable way to continue on. So asking for help if I don't know the answer. I have never actually been in a sales role, but I am leading business at a company. I am responsible for revenue, pipeline, go-to-market, customer success. These are not skills that I ever learned in college that I had on my other jobs. So it's actually asking for help. I forced us to apply for a startup accelerator. Stanford's startup accelerator called StartX has been a tremendous resource. We actually just got into the program. So it's going to be three months of free resources, unbelievable access to mentors for for no equity. Even just applying for that, I felt like, oh my gosh, what a failure. I need this. Like, No, asking for help is the most strategic thing you can do because no one person is as smart as a collective or the, the past experience of all these startup founders who have done it before. So asking for help is the first step in really doing the best thing you can possibly do for your company. I think you make a good point. Like for other people, maybe after working for how many years, especially at a company like Google, they would feel like, oh, if I applied to an accelerator, especially one like this, that is like non-equity, they might feel like, oh, will, will it signal to people that I don't know what I'm doing? There's a little bit of that. Sometimes I think like, well, shouldn't I know this? Like I've been working for over 15 years. Why don't I, why don't I know the answer? Why am I not getting it right? Mm-hmm. Building a company is hard. Going back to the stat, again, 90% of startups fail. Everyone thinks they should know. Everyone thinks at some point they're going to succeed and they've got the answer. The stat says otherwise. So, so the more I just have to remind myself, you got to ask for help. There is a thousand people, a thousand times more people who have expertise that are smarter than I am in this subject. Tap into that wisdom. It is not a sign of failure. In fact, it shows humility. It shows that you're hungry to keep learning. So I actually tap into that side, which I've always been eager to learn, hungry to grow. So it's really that growth mindset that I need to apply to using that to try to figure out what my next step is or what the strategy should be. And when you ask for help, like how do you know which advice to follow? I think that's also something I hear from people like, I'm afraid that if I ask people for help, they might give me the wrong answer. But I think at the end of the day, it's up to you. So how do you guide yourself to act on which pieces of advice? Yeah, that's also a great question, Amanda. Because we now have a couple of mentors and they will have conflicting advice or they'll say certain things and, and we've tried it. I mean, they also don't have any hubris. They're not saying they know the right answer. They're there to be soundboards offer guidance, advice, but ultimately we're the ones day in, day out, talking to customers, testing out the product. So you got to go with your gut and your gut isn't always right, but you got to at least commit to a direction, commit to a campaign, commit to an initiative and rapidly test and iterate and fail and move on if necessary. But listen to your gut. You got to try some things set benchmarks and parameters for what actually you're going to test because you can try something, but if it goes on and on and on, you're not actually going to make, you're not going to draw a line a line in the sand saying, has this succeeded or failed? So it's setting up very controlled tests, but also being able to recognize and accept when it's not working and then move on. So kind of going back to, it's hard to admit failure or ask for help, but it just comes with the territory. You got to swallow your pride and be okay with moving on. And Stacey, since you've been working since you were eight, so you have 
like a very <laughs> long career. What would you say is the biggest personal sacrifice you've made as you've been building your career? Is it what you said earlier about like how you sacrificed your childhood in a sense, like because you grew up early? Or would you point to something else as like a bigger personal sacrifice? Oh, that's so interesting. I don't think I've sacrificed anything. In fact, I still feel so lucky every single day that I've had such a diverse career that I've been able to live so many lives, essentially, in the different roles that I've had. I've been an actress, a journalist, a tech employee, now startup co-founder. Because I've been able to wear so many hats, I am just so fortunate that I believe I've lived a, an incredibly full life. And it, the best is yet to come. I'm still in my 30s. Like I can't even imagine what my 40s are going to be like. So to me, that's super exciting. And I, I definitely don't view any of this as a sacrifice. It's definitely been a really thrilling career. I feel like you're constantly reinventing yourself. <laughs> yeah. Why not? We've got one life to live. Might as well try as many things that are humanly possible. I don't know. Like I would, I think about all the crazy things that I could do in my next career and I'm, nothing seems too out of the realm of what I can do next. But really being a, being a startup founder has given me that confidence, that courage to go try something pretty crazy. I think you've got to be a little bit delusional to think that you can start a company and succeed given all of the headwinds and the stats against you. But it's really taking that plunge, that leap of faith, just believing in yourself, putting one step in, foot in front of the other every single day and not giving up. But also being realistic. And if there is another opportunity, it's not failing. It's recognizing that there is something really fascinating, something that you're really passionate about that's going to bring you joy. That's not going to feel like a sacrifice at all, but in fact, it's going to challenge you and bring you joy every day and hopefully make an impact on the world and also bring joy to others. I feel like your own life has 1 million stories to tell. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet, Amanda. You're the best. Well, I think our time is about to end. So I'm going to ask you the last question and hopefully we're on another podcast again together. But this is also a question I ask everyone on the podcast, and that is outside of work, so strictly outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life at any given point in time? It could be 80 or 100. <laughs> oh, goodness. Physical fitness is incredibly important to me. I think the mental and physical are so intricately entwined. You can't have a healthy mind without a healthy body. And so that's why I take fitness and my my physical health very, very seriously. So I, I do CrossFit. I love lifting weights. I love being strong. A strong body, I think, leads to a strong mind and vice versa. And one thing that I wasn't on was, was running. I would tell myself, oh, I'm bad at running. I hate running. I found myself having this really negative attitude towards running that was pretty unfounded. And so January 1st, I woke up and I said, I'm going to run a 5K today. It's not a huge distance, but for someone that doesn't like running or always told herself, I don't like running, I said, just do it. Again, put one foot in front of the other and see if you can do it. If you feel tired and you say, I can't do it, I'm going to give up, just keep pushing. In fact, what my friend told me is the body is stronger than the mind. I said, wait, wait, no, you, you've got that wrong. That's back. Yeah. Your mind is stronger than your body. Yeah. She's like, no. Your body is capable. Your body can run a 5K. It's your mind that gets in the way and tells you, oh, you're tired. You can't do it. 
I promise you your body can run a 5k. And so January 1st, I did it. I didn't do any sort of training. I just put on a really great playlist and I ran a 5k and I've shed this negative mentality or this mindset of saying, I can't, or I don't like running to, well, I can do it. So that was just, it, it was, it was a small thing for me, but something that was pretty powerful because I wanted to get rid of this negative mindset and also proved myself that I could do things. So I don't know if it's advice, but whenever I hear people say like, oh, I can't do this, or I, I, I could never lift a hundred pounds or, oh, I would never run a marathon. I know you can do it. And so something that I want to achieve someday Probably a half marathon. I don't need to do a full marathon, but a half marathon to prove to myself that I that I can do it. And that kind of promise and commitment to myself is I think what what founders do is you've got no one to hold you accountable but yourself. And so if you believe in yourself, you actually can do it. And that self-fulfilling cycle is, I think, the courage and confidence that really helps founders ultimately succeed. So you had like a random day where you didn't like sign up for any like 5k run and you just did it on your own in New York. I was, I was at home in LA and it was January 1st. So it was a little symbolic first day of the new year. And I said, get your shoes on, go, go run. However long it takes you don't stop, but run that 5k. And I did it. And I was so thrilled with myself. And then when you realize you can do it, what else is there? How do you unlock that 10k? What if I can lift 200 pounds? Suddenly, everything that you thought was too difficult or not possible suddenly unlocks and becomes possible. So it's all those steps where you thought it was too difficult. If you can do it, like think about what is absolutely capable and that kind of imagination, that dreaming suddenly becomes so powerful and exciting. What else can I do? Oh no, but I'm really excited to find out. So I think what we're going to do this year for the both of us is continue pushing what we think is possible. <laughs> I love it. Okay. We're going to hold ourselves accountable, Amanda. I mean, I've seen you push and grow and I'm so excited and thrilled to keep watching your journey. I'm going to keep you accountable to the half marathon this year. <laughs> I'm going to schedule an email in the middle of the year. I'm going to do it right after and say, Stacey, how about the half marathon? Have you signed up to I'm one? <laughs> I've signed up for a 10K in Namibia with a very, very dear friend. So flying all the way out to Africa in Namibia, I will do the 10K. We'll see about the half marathon, but baby steps. Okay, let's do it. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Stacey. This is super fun. And I hope you get to see each other soon. It was such a blast. Thanks so much for having me on, Amanda. And I hope to see you in the Philippines or come visit me in New York or wherever in the world we are. Maybe we'll meet at a half marathon. <laughs> you really are going to hold me. <laughs> okay. Okay. You can do it.